unity will one day be restored and they'll know we are Christians by our love by our love yes they'll know we are Christians by our Submerge me, immerse me. This song was written by Jesus Adrián Romero, who's a contemporary Christian songwriter from Mexico. And we sang this actually, I sang it about a month ago, before Bob left for his sabbatical and his walk on the Camino de Santiago. And the text, Cansado del Camino, Tired of the Way, Sedienta de ti, thirsty for you. I've crossed a desert. I've stayed without strength. I come to you. I fought like a soldier, and sometimes I suffered. And though I won the fight, I have worn my armor. I come to you. Vengo a ti. Immerse me, submerge me in the river of your spirit. I need to refresh this dry heart. Thirsty for you, immerse me, sumergeme. Cansado del camino, sediento de ti. Un desierto he cruzado, sin fuerzas he quedado, vengo a ti. Luché como soldado, ya 
veces sufrí y aunque la lucha he ganado mi armadura he descuidado vengo a ti sumérgeme Espíritu, necesito refrescar este seco corazón, ese tiempo de ti, de ti, sumérgeme en el río de tu espíritu, necesito refrescar este seco corazón. Se tiempo de ti, cansado del camino, sediento de ti, un desierto he cruzado, sin fuerzas he quedado, vengo a ti, luché como soldado. Sufrí, y aunque la lucha he ganado, mi armadura he disgustado, vengo a ti, sumérgeme en el río de tu espíritu, necesito refrescar este seco corazón, sediento de ti, sumérgeme en el río de tu espíritu, necesito refrescar este seco corazón, sediento de ti, Thank you. We're going to finish our prelude with a song that you can join in on. Hush, hush, somebody's calling my name. If you want to look at the hymnal, it's the blue hymnal 1040, but you probably can pick up the words pretty fast. Hush, somebody's calling my name. And I invite you to rise in body or spirit for this song and for the call to worship.
Will you join me in our call to worship? It's printed in your order of service. I'll read the plain font and we'll read the italics together. Let's not go building new walls around our hearts. We have already enough that keeps us from each other. Enough that keeps us from ourselves. For this hour, we practice showing up with a willingness to see, to be seen, to remember ourselves whole and still becoming better, to believe it is okay to not be okay, that we are loved even when we feel unlovable, that we belong even when the ground comes out from under us, to be for each other a surprising generosity, a sudden sweetness, a sign of hope, the start of a new day. Together, we can be this brave. Let's worship together. Join me in singing the chorus. It's in your order of service. We'll repeat it several times. I pray for you. You pray for me. I love you. I need you to survive. I won't harm you with words from my mouth. I love you. I need survive. I pray for you. You pray for me. I love you. I need you to survive. I won't harm you with words from my mouth. I love you. I need you 
Thank you. I need you. Hello, beautiful. I'm Iris. Welcome. The end of July. Was that a month or a lifetime? Or a bake time? Are we done yet? Are we risen as in bread? Is this what incarnation looks like? Or just caramelization? Whatever it is, it is happening. Whatever it is, all the ingredients are here. And whatever's in the oven, I'm glad Angela's back. Take a, a moment to notice the people near you, across the room, the bodies down the row from you. The small bodies stuck on go, learn, solve. The large bodies and their ways of navigating the world. The more frail or perhaps sunken bodies and everything they may carry. The bodies perhaps clothed in ways you don't expect, don't fit together seamlessly in ways you expect. Is it too much to say we're one body? It's a nice thought, but a dangerous conclusion. But can we linger on the edge of that possibility? Depending on our privilege, we may spend much of our lives not needing to remember how we are bodies, breathing, itching, trembling, laughing, coughing, humming, pitter-patting bodies in a room with music and chairs and a bunch of sound equipment and distractions to some bodies maybe lifelines to others. Parents and other caregivers, sometimes it's enough just to get here. We hold space for you and decisions you or I need to make regarding expected or unexpected things children do. We provide literal space to hopefully make the tenuous moments more solid, a playground up front with soft playthings, an art table at the back with things to color with and color on, and a family room across the hall where play noise is not the same problem. A cozy, toy-stocked, soundproof den where you and fellow parents get to make noise, finally. Coming together on Sunday morning it is a powerful act where we become something together we didn't know was possible. We didn't know who we were until you walked in. And we don't know who we'll be when you and I walk, roll, shamble, sashay out of here into the courtyard together. But I can't wait to find out. 
The Good Samaritan is a story that I have told and you've probably heard many times. Here's the story of Jesus' parable from 10 Luke 25, 37 and IV. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit internal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, and so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds and pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The Good Samaritan is one of Jesus' most well-known parables, but the story has lost some of its impact in modern times. We understand the meaning of this parable but knowing what was going on in first century Judea, where Jesus and his followers lived, helps us better understand the importance of this story. The story takes place on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho, about 17 miles of travel. Jerusalem was where the temple was. Jericho was where many of the priests and Levites, the temple workers, lived. A stretch of that road was known as the Way of Blood. 
because so many people were robbed and killed there. People knew exactly where Jesus was talking about. Listeners would have assumed the man who was attacked by robbers was Jewish. Love your neighbor as yourself is part of the Old Testament law, Leviticus 19.18, that was sacred to Jesus' people, the Jews, but many people thought that neighbor meant only their fellow Jews. That's what the lawyer meant when he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Samaritans were the despised enemies of the Jews. People would have expected a Jew, the priest or the Levite, to be the hero of this story. Learning that the hero was a Samaritan, an absolute outcast in the Judean world, would have shocked the listeners. When Jesus tells the expert in religious law, the lawyer, and us to go and do the same, we can take that to mean that all people, even those we despise, must be our neighbors, and we must extend the love that the Samaritan showed to all. Now we come to the time in our week when we get to do a very unusual and beautiful thing, which is to join together with 150 people or so in just peaceful contemplation. Each of us comes into the sanctuary from our own world within this world. We leave some things behind and we bring some things with us in our hearts or on our minds. And I invite you to let it all rest now for a moment as we sit and breathe together. Take a breath in and out in a spirit of love and goodwill for each other and for our planet. Breathing in love, breathing out peace. And let your shoulders loosen. Let the chair bear your weight. Let it bear the weight of all that you carry. And arrive with your whole being. Arrive in this sacred space with light coming in the windows and light from the spirit of life, the spark of existence, shining through you and your neighbor and everyone. And as we enter into two minutes of stillness, 
let any sounds you hear just call you deeply into this present moment. And when your mind wanders, just gently bring it back. Keep it going. People get ready. There's a train a coming. You don't need no ticket. You just get on board. The only thing in love to keep the diesels humming. You don't need no baggage. You just praise the Lord when I breathe.
Let's lift up some prayers. I lift up our UU kids campers and all the adults who accompanied them into the Sacramento mountains this week. And I know there are many names in your minds and in your hearts. I invite you to think of them now, all the people and places you've got a prayer or a wish for. And I invite you to speak them aloud as the chime rings so we can hold them with you. May all of these and everyone gathered this morning know peace, know healing, know strength, know celebration, whatever is needed on this day. We give thanks for this community, for this morning. We pray that our intentions and our lives be of service in this world. May we walk in the ways of love. Amen. Peace be with you. This prayer that you heard first in Hungarian and then translated into English comes from the Transylvanian region of Romania, which is also one of the early places where Unitarianism was al allowed to thrive, not considered a heresy against Trinitarianism. Modern day Unitarians in Romania consider themselves Christian even though as Unitarians, they don't believe in Father, Son, and Holy Ghost as the Trinity. They think of Jesus not as the divine Son of God, but as the teacher that they follow, whose stories and teachings they want to base their life on. And this is also a song with two parts where both of them go together. Where there is love, 
This is an excerpt from Beyond Belief, The Secret Gospel of Thomas by Elaine Pagels. On a bright Sunday morning in February, shivering in a t-shirt and running shorts, I stepped into the stone vestibule of the Church of the Heavenly Rest in New York to catch my breath and warm up. Since I had not been in church for a long time, I was startled by my response to the worship in progress, the soaring harmonies of the choir singing with the congregation, and the priest, a woman in bright gold and white vestments, proclaiming the prayers in a clear, resonant voice. As I stood watching, a thought came to me. Here is a family who knows how to face death. That morning, I had gone for an early morning run with, while my husband and two-and-a-half-year-old son were still sleeping. The previous night, I had been sleepless with fear and worry. Two days before, a team of doctors at Babies Hospital, Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center, had performed a routine checkup on our son, Mark, a year and six months after his successful open heart surgery. The physicians were shocked to find evidence of a rare lung disease. Disbelieving the results, they tested before they finally called us in to say that Mark had a pulmonary hypertension, a disease with the worst possible prognosis. How much time, I asked. We don't know. A few months, a few years. We gathered him into our arms and carried him home. Standing in the back of the church, I recognized uncomfortably that I needed to be there. Here was a place to weep without imposing tears upon a child. And here was a heterogeneous community that had gathered to sing, to celebrate, to acknowledge common needs, and to deal with what we cannot control or imagine. Yet the celebration in progress spoke of hope. Perhaps that is what made the presence of death bearable. Before that time, I could only ward off what I had heard and felt the day before. I returned often to that church, not looking for faith, but because in the presence of that worship and the people gathered there and in a smaller group that met on weekdays in the church basement for mutual encouragement, my defenses fell away, exposing storms of grief and hope. In that church, I gathered new energy and resolved over and over to face whatever awaited us as constructively as possible for Mark and for the rest of us. When people would say to me, your faith must be of great help to you, I would wonder, what do they mean? What is faith? Certainly not simple assent to the set of beliefs that worshipers in that church recited every week, 
We believe in one God, the Father, almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Traditional statements that sounded strange to me, like barely intelligible signals from the surface, heard from the bottom of the ocean. Such statements seemed to me then to have little to do with whatever transactions we were making with one another, with ourselves, and so it was said, with invisible beings. I was acutely aware that we had met there, driven by need and desire, yet sometimes I dared hope that such communion has the potential to transform us. I chose that reading this morning because it's so easy to get caught up in a bumper sticker face of Christianity or like a cable news version of it, an American far right version of Christianity, and to forget that beneath that or behind that is a set of practices and ways of being that many people have found healing for the last 2,000 years. I just don't think a religion could survive that long if it seemed as though its sole practice were, or its sole purpose were proselytizing or which by definition is opposed to science and reason or which inherently divides people from each other and from the planet. Those tendencies among some who identify as Christian are distracting but they're not definitive. Unitarian Universalists come from many different kinds of backgrounds. I went to acknowledge once again this morning. Some UUs identify as Christian, some don't and have painful histories with Christianity, painful experiences growing up especially. Some identify as Buddhist or other traditions along with UU and some are just Unitarian Universalists. Our congregation embraces that, all of that, and this denomination does not identify as Christian, but it welcomes some folks who do. But whatever your religious background, I invite you to set aside the Christianity you think you know this morning and encounter it as a learner with the freshness and curiosity of a child. The way Jesus asked all of his followers to in the Gospel of Matthew, when he said that the ones who humble themselves like children are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. His words have often been taken to refer to purity or innocence, but all through the Gospels, Jesus challenges his followers' common sense, pressing them to be more open, to be more curious, to think outside of what they think they know. Just as he wanted his teachings to be encountered with openness, so today will we try to encounter the tradition that emanated from it. And we'll take a look at what Christianity has been and what it is and who the heck got to decide. Right? Who got to decide this? So let's go back to the earliest days and what we know about those, and then we'll be better prepared, I think, to understand what we see today. It all begins, as you surely know, with a Jewish carpenter, a guy from a family that might not have 
looked like much to pay attention to if you had passed them on the street. He did not think of his teachings as Christianity. That word would not be coined until long after his death. But to those who knew him, to many of them, it appeared that God spoke to, to him and through him as he traveled around sharing what he had to say. And what he had to say was radical. It was radical, especially compared to the Christian nationalism that threatens us today. He said that people cannot live on physical sustenance alone, that they need an ever-deepening relationship with the world beneath the world we see, beneath what we perceive, with truth, with God. He said that love for one another and being in right relationship are more important than any formal act of worship. That's from Matthew 5.23. And he told people not to show off their religiousness. Close your door and pray, he said, in secret. Do not sound trumpets about it. Do not heap words. Keep it simple. That's Matthew 6, 1 through 16. And he said that everybody is equally worthy of God's love and equally worthy of joining Jesus' spiritual family. He hung out with everyone, with unrepentant criminals as well as his devoted followers, with contagiously ill people and with strangers and unmarried women, unheard of in his time. He called all of them his family. And he was clear about what was most important. Loving God and your neighbor with all your heart is the essence of all other teachings, he explained. And you don't have to pay much attention to what people profess to believe. You'll know the good ones by the way they live their lives. You'll know them by their fruits. But not everything he said was really easy to understand, right? That stuff seems fairly straightforward. But some things were harder to understand. He preached radical nonviolence, telling his followers not to resist evil, but to turn to the other cheek. Really? Right? Like, haven't some of us been through enough already? I think it's a fair question, depending on who you are in society. It's a challenging teaching. There's been a lot of interpreting of that one. He said, perhaps contradictorily, that at the end of time, the evil will be thrown into the fire. Who counts as evil from this teacher? And is this one of his many, many metaphors? Right? He's spoken so many parables and metaphors. He spoke in the images of his time. Let your loins be girded and your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the marriage feast. It takes some real research to figure out what that means, like what that meant to his listeners in the time. Well, needless to say, his life left his followers with many questions. In fact, the Gospels are full of stories of them asking him questions, just wondering and wondering and wondering what he was trying to say. So his apostles, after his death, went off to teach what they had learned, but what to teach? You know, he never wrote anything down, and as far as we can tell, his apostles might not have either. Of the Gospels in the Christian Bible today, most scholars think the Gospel of Mark is the oldest one, and it wasn't written until 70 years after his death. 70 years, it's a long time. And although it's penned in the name of one of his apostles, it's unlikely that anybody who knew him firsthand could have written it. And instead, it's probably an example of pseudonymous writing, or writing under somebody else's name. Writing under someone else's name was really common in those times, maybe for the purpose of gaining credibility or maybe actually to honor the person whose name was used. We don't really know. 
But what we do know is that there are far more texts from that time than are included in today's Christian Bible. And their divergent perspectives reveal an amazing amount of diversity in the early church, beginning with those disciples, each of whom had heard things through their own ears and apparently had their own take on things. In 1945, a shepherd discovered 52 ancient texts hidden in a cave near Nag Hammadi, Egypt. And of all the ancient texts that still exist, 30 are Gospels, like the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So why do us, why do most of us, why do us, why do most of us know of only those four? Why were the others lost, only to be discovered later, like in that cave? Well, those four were compiled into the Christian canon, the official scriptures. Well, this is where the plot thickens. <laughs> in her book, Beyond Belief, from which that reading came, Elaine Pagels tells the story of the surprisingly diverse early Christian church. One of the most important questions facing them was what practices and beliefs were the correct ones for this new group that would eventually be called Christian. Within a century of Jesus's death, she says some of his most loyal followers had determined to exclude a wide range of Christian sources. In order to understand why they would do this, we have to understand something about the challenges and the risks they faced during their time. First of all, Christianity was spreading rapidly through the Roman Empire, causing alarm among people in power, and consequently, Christians were beginning to be attacked and persecuted. Meanwhile, even though the diversity within Christianity no doubt helped it spread, it also led to division between differing groups, and it made them suspicious of each other, and it made it hard for them to defend their faith with one voice. Irenaeus, a bishop in the second century, was one of many Christian leaders who wished for one unified Catholic church. This is Catholic with a small c. The word Catholic just means universal. It was not yet a brand, but you can see where this is going. Irenaeus was among the first to decide, based on his group's traditions, that only the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John would be legitimate, and he spent his lifetime working to unify Christianity accordingly. He was so successful that those Gospels still form the official church canon today. And not only that, his interpretation of them, which was aimed at contradicting what he saw as heresies, including the roots of Unitarian Universalism, that interpretation is still reflected in the translations that we receive. Most of the competing texts were lost or destroyed. A few, a few were hidden away in monastery libraries, and some were tucked away deep in the hillsides where, amazingly, some were unearthed in the last century. Unification, however, did not stop the persecution. Instead, it got worse. For the next two centuries, Christians' faith would be tested in dungeons and prisons and other horrible conditions. Throughout it, the radical message of love and equality and the promise of the kingdom of God forged a powerful, indomitable sense of community among believers. Finally, in the fourth century, a titanic shift occurred. 
the Emperor Constantine aligned himself with the most organized, visible strand of Christianity, the one that Irenaeus had worked on, giving it official sanction and protection. Constantine was a practical military leader who recognized the advantage of marshalling such a rapidly growing movement. And even though he is said to have had an authentic Christian conversion experience, he also appears to have continued worshiping Apollo, the son of Zeus. What happened next, though, was the creation of a Christian empire. And in 325, three centuries after Jesus died, it led to the development of the Nicene Creed, which lays out the Trinity, the virgin birth, the resurrection, and the reign of God to come. Diversity, although not snuffed out by any means, had been tempered. Decisions had been made. Christianity was now poised to take the stage as one of the world's great religions. The interesting thing, though, is that in terms of the teachings of Jesus, it's not clear that this turn of events was as fortuitous as it might seem. The religious historian Karen Armstrong says that Christianity, which began as a religion of hope, love, and peace for society's underdogs, has never been at its best when in power. These days, when we think about the separation of church and state, we in the U.S. worry about the influence that religion would have over the state. That's usually how we frame that concern. But the first people for the separation of church and state were worried about what happened in Constantine's time. It wasn't that the church controlled the state. It was that the state controlled the church. And the church became not a liberating message of hope meant to challenge and reorder an unjust world, but in some ways, just another tool of politics. A lot has changed since then, but not the struggle for Christians to reclaim the heart of their faith in the midst of power. And as it turns out, another thing that has not changed is the tendency for the Christian tradition to foster diversity in its midst. And fast forwarding, here we are with Christianities in America today. Fundamentalism is an American strain of Christianity that took shape in the 1940s as a response to historical criticism casting doubt upon traditional understandings of the scripture. Historical criticism, by the way, is what I am doing in this sermon, talking about the historical context of things and looking at what new meaning that sheds on what we understand. It began with a collection of essays that was called The Fundamentals, published in 1910. And that collection of essays pretty much flew under the radar of scholars and the news at the time, but they went on to form the backbone of, religious, of American religious conservatism. The essays laid out a set of fundamental beliefs, including the belief that the scripture we receive today as the official canon, which you now know was formed as a result of specific historic tensions and by a handful of powerful people, the belief that that is the inerrant, literally true word of God. Fundamentalism was an attempt to fend off the influence of contemporary culture on Christianity. In all traditions, in fact, 
including ours, should take note of the risk of bowing to the culture of any particular age. And just as an individual's example, we have to be on guard for things like a consumerist mentality so pervasive in this time and place that might lead us to decide whether to come to church, say, whether or based whether or not on whether we like the sermon topic, right? Instead of showing up for the sake of community or because we want to knit our lives to a larger purpose and mission that is much larger than anything one person could say in a pulpit. But I think where fundamentalism went awry was in imagining that there was ever a time when Christianity was not influenced by history and culture. By picking a set of beliefs from long ago and setting them in stone, it to a certain extent merely set past cultural norms in stone, many of which don't in fact support Jesus' teaching to love our neighbors, and many of which, if we judge them by their fruits, are bitter. Families and communities divided, narrow theologies that don't lead to lives of justice, a small, small version of a once radically inclusive religion. And that kind of thinking doesn't just divide believers and non-believers, it divides Christians from each other as well. Reuben Archer Torrey was dean of the Los Angeles Bible Institute and one of the most prominent fundamentalists of the early 20th century. He referred to another Christian group as the last vomit of Satan. It's like, wow, <laughs> right? He said that about the Pentecostals, even though the two groups agree on many points, but Pentecostals are a bit more tolerant of theological diversity and they value direct experience of God as well as scripture. They have that in common with us, with you muse. And there are also the evangelicals, some of whom are also fundamentalists in terms of their interpretation of scripture, but not necessarily all, and who, unlike the fundamentalists, don't want to cut themselves off from the world, but the way want to engage it. There are less visible forms of Christianity in the U.S., of course. The fastest growing one is made up of non-denominational churches that consider themselves part of the new apostolic reformation. That is a movement worth its own sermon, and I'll have to circle back to that another day. But all of them, like us too, all of them is shaped by this historical moment and culture, in fact. And what a culture it is, yeah? <laughs> sometimes amazing, sometimes ridiculous. As I was writing this, I thought about how every once in a while I receive a catalog in the mail from a church supply company called Oriental Trading. <laughs> and it is a bizarre, bizarre expression of religion intersecting with culture. <laughs> like plasticky nativity play costumes, including an inflatable manger, <laughs> happy birthday Jesus party hats, beach balls. Remember when we threw some beach balls around a couple months ago? Those were not from this catalog, those are different. <laughs> One item in the catalog had the description, remember the true meaning of Christmas with this ceramic mug. <laughs> and there was an inspirational gift bag you could get if you wanted to give it away. There was a Jesus Rubik's Cube accurately described as a faith-based puzzle. Like, hmm. 
and a roll of candy with scripture on the wrapper that said, blessed are ye when men shall persecute you for my sake. And a piece of candy. <laughs> that wording is from the 15th century King James translation of the Bible, of the Gospels, by the way, which is an interesting choice for candy. There's another uh, thing that arrives in the mail sometimes called homiletics magazine, which I gather is meant to help preachers in their work. So this is another funny example of culture. Homiletics, the marketing magazine said, the marketing materials said, paints word pictures for conveying the gospel to today's audiences. It uses concrete images like fleas, ducks, nitpickers, used tombstones, church slugs, and dung heaps to confront current topics. <laughs> You'll draw people in with titles like the naughty, the nasty, and the nauseating, Red Bull Buzz, and Engineering for Eternity. I feel like I could be spicing my sermon titles up just so much more, right? So much more. But you know, despite the noise of culture and despite the rippling effects of historical events, religiously liberal Christians abound, and they say that the faith is still active, that Jesus is still speaking through his teachings right now. Never place a period where God has placed a comma, says the United Church of Christ. They're Congregationalists, the group that split off from Unitarianism back in the 1800s, and they are our close cousins theologically. So what is Christianity? Is it what Elaine Pagels encountered when she stumbled into church in New York City and she found a place to cry for her son? Or is it a set of historic creeds? Is it the spiritual sustenance that nourished the soul of the civil rights movement and embraces diverse people today? Or is it a movement that promotes violent attacks on LGBTQ people? And who gets to decide? All religions are lived in the context of a still unfolding history with the result that they are influenced by historical decisions and they are hard to narrow down. But I believe surely there is some glowing coal at the center of Christianity that its loveliest expressions make manifest. And the question I think brings us back to the words of Jesus who said, you shall know them by their fruits. We sang a song a couple of weeks ago that goes, everything is holy now. One defining feature of the Christianity of my childhood in a bougie Connecticut suburb was the sense of us and them, believers and non-believers, holy and unholy. I thought God got a part of your salary because that was an unholy mess, money, and what to do with it. I tried to avoid that mess by never having any. I thought this God added to his personal stash, his holiness arsenal. 
There's no better news than everything is holy now. Even the so-called mess, even having to get all your swamp coolers replaced barely in time for the hottest July ever. The salaries of the wonderful people just hired and the salaries of the people who hired them. Yep. All that given to God, what is God's? Just a stack of paychecks. So it is with this house of worship, and that stack includes singular checks for things we may never know about, keeping people perhaps sitting down the row from you housed out of abusive situations. All of it is holy now. The pledges you make, the ones you're in a position to fulfill, the coins you drop in the basket for change for the future, holy, holy. Our Change for the Future partner the past three months is Libros for Kids, an organization that mails a free book every month to kids from birth to age five in Bernalillo and Valencia counties. That means each child receives 60 books in a year, including 12 bilingual titles. You may drop loose change in the basket or mark one of the envelopes on the back of the chair CFF to direct your offering to Libros for Kids. We will now receive this holy offering. Sure, it keeps me down to size. I don't want to know about evil. I only want to know about love. I don't want to know about evil. I just want to know about love. I'm waiting for the planes to tumble. Days to crumble. Wait until I hear the call. It's getting kind of hard to listen. Hard for us to use our eyes. Cause all around the gold, the gold is glistening. Making sure it keeps us hypnotized. I don't want to know. I just want to know about love, yeah. I don't want to know about evil. Just want to know about love. I just want to know about love, yeah, yeah. I just want, just want to know about love. 
great music today. Thank you, musicians. Thank you, Susan and Lydia. And thank all of you for your generosity. Thank you on behalf of the congregation and on behalf of our Change for the Future partner, Libros for Kids. May these gifts be for blessing in the world. Well, this is the time of the service where we share a couple of invitations with you. Uh, I invite you to come back next Sunday. But I don't know what's going to be happening that day because, unfortunately, our guest preacher had a family medical emergency. So the Reverend Amanda Poppy had to cancel her trip to New Mexico. Uh, it probably will be me preaching unless I get a volunteer. So <laughs> come back next week and we'll figure it out by then. Did you know Sundays come every seven days? You are all invited to coffee hour. Uh, we over in the social hall and there are chat tables um, for you to meet other people and discuss a topic uh, from today's sermon. And while you're in those discussions or any later discussions or other discussions you have today, you might like a little conversation starter. So how about this? What are the fruits of your faith? What are the fruits of your faith? How does it show up in your life? What do you do differently because of your spirituality? And what do you wish the fruits of your faith were? That should get the conversation going. All right. <laughs> I invite everyone to rise and body your spirit. Let's greet each other with a gesture of peace. We like to do it with one hand over our hearts, and then we just extend the other hand toward our fellow, our neighbors here this morning. Peace to all. Peace. And our closing song today has just one word, one of the most Christian words that comes to us from Easter, Alleluia. And if you want to open your blue hymnal to number 1050 for the melody, you can look on or you can just follow me. There are three different parts. Sing whichever one you want, layer them up. We're just going to repeat some of them. until we're gathered again. Blessed be.
Thank you.